This episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America is brought to you by David A. Pascarella. David wanted to dedicate this episode to the memory of John Pavignano, 1928-2014. Earth 2. A world much like our own, yet slightly different. There, young and old have banded together to battle evil. They are the heroes of World War II, as well as their sons and daughters, protégés and godchildren. Two True Freaks presents... The Tales of the Justice Society of America! Overwhelming demand. This is the Tales of the Justice Society of America. My name is Scott Gardner, and I am joined by my very good friend, Michael Bailey. Yeah, it, it, it took some legal wranglings, but we're back. <laughs> Don't believe what you read in the tablet. <laughs> it's all been worked out, and it's all good. Oh my god, the, dude. The the checks have cleared. And <laughs> because you know, I, I think I think a proper hiatus is almost two years. So two yeah. almost two years. That's that's insane. That is absolutely insane. We're so sorry, folks. We never never intended to be gone so long. But you know, it uh, it's really no hyperbole. There has been overwhelming demand for this show to come back. I, I don't think that there's been a week that's gone by in those two years that I haven't received received some form of of message or correspondence somewhere from somebody saying, "Dude, what's up with Tales? When is the show coming back?" And sometimes sometimes it's another podcast because <laughs> on the the latest uh, Shortbox Showcase. Uh, which was their kind of year in review of you know where you know where they were with the relatively geeky network. Hi, Alan and Emily. How you doing? Um, and they were talking about Emily's show, uh, the Bronze Age show that she does, only having three episodes. And he named three shows that have also n- not had any episodes in six months and one of them was Bailey's Batman podcast the other was uh, Death in the Acrid uh, Acrid mm-hmm. Smell of Gunspoke and Tales of the JSA and he meant it in fun and I took it in fun but I just think it's funny that uh, that of all of the shows that have kind of pod faded you know that he could have chosen <laughs> he picked us yep so both our solo work and the and the thing we do together so I do take that as a compliment, though. Because, oh, me too. Absolutely. You know, I, I've listened to shows before that, that pod faded, and I can't remember ever really pestering the creators of the shows. Like, when are you guys coming back? When are you guys coming? I was just like, oh, they're gone. So to be continually, um, I don't want to say pestered, but essentially pestered two years is, I, I think that says a lot. It says you were doing something that people really enjoyed. And yeah. that means a lot to me. It it honestly does. But, you know, it occurs to me, <clears throat> before we go too much further into this, Mike, 
uh, we're kind of doing this as if uh, almost like we never stopped. And seeing as how we have had a two-year hiatus with this, we're probably, I would imagine, going to have a number of folks that if they do download this, it's probably going to be their first time. Maybe they're checking in out of curiosity. Maybe they've heard about the show but not necessarily heard the show. Mm-hmm. So maybe we should do a little, uh, you know, who we are and, and recap the whole thing. What do you think? Well, uh, yeah, that that sounds great. I mean, it, it you know, this show started uh, on a dare. <laughs> and and I think there was a no. I'm just kidding. I should have uh, just taken my shirt off, and it would have we didn't we'd have never had to worry about it. But well, yeah. I, I I think the origins really go back to one day I was sitting at work, uh, checking my email because I'm professional and stuff. <laughs> and this this guy that had the weirdest email address I had ever seen. <laughs> um, and and that was the first thing that I saw was the email address, and I think it's like the whatever. I don't want to give it out because I don't want people to have right. a private email address. But it was just like, hey, you know, I, I I think he said you'd listen to from Crisis to Crisis, and you wanted me on this show called Back to the Bins, and I was like, sure, why not? It's always nice to be asked, and <laughs> the moment I knew we were going to be friends was we get up on Skype, never seen each other, never talked to each other besides the emails. And I went, hey, you have, an adoc- you have a Dr. Occult avatar. And you were so happy that I knew that that was Dr. Occult. And not Dick Tracy. <laughs> and not Dick Tracy. And then to find out that at the time, you lived like an hour from me. Mm-hmm. It was just like, this This is faded. And we, we did a couple other shows. We did a, a I think the real or, origins of this, was, uh, if you're really going to be technical about it, was the Back to the Bins we did about um, Gladiator. Mm-hmm. Hugo um, Danner, yeah. The, the Hugo Danner uh, we, episode. If, folks, if you have not heard that episode, go back in the archives of Two True Freaks, specifically Back to the Bins, and uh, and listen to an episode. Um, I think the name of the episode is something like "Who the hell is Hugo Danner?" or something to that effect. <laughs> Sounds like you, something you would have done back. Yeah, then. exactly. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I'm not kidding. I think that's one of the finest shows we ever did. I, I just, I, we, we both had such a blast. And you, you know, this comes up a lot when people talk about what makes a good podcast. You know, what do you think makes a good podcast? I think. You know, if there is one prime ingredient, it's when you can tell, man, these guys love what they're talking about. And you talk about an episode where we were on. Mm-hmm. We were we were totally on in that episode because I think we were on for a couple of different reasons. For one, yes, we really cared about that subject. Hugo Danner is a favorite character of the both of us. But also, I think a lot of it was that that it was in the in the early stages of us becoming friends, and I think we were still in that honey glow phase of wow, this guy <laughs> likes what I like, and you know, and you know what I mean. I mean, it's different if you know you find somebody that likes your favorite baseball team or something, as opposed to some super incredibly obscure literary character, and you go, holy shit, they even, I'm surprised they even know this character, let alone hey, he loves this character too. So I think that really made for a solid show. And, of course, that character, Hugo Danner, had connections to, uh, you know, well, his son is, his illegitimate son is Arn Monroe, who was uh, a member of Roy Thomas's Young All-Stars. So, of course, the Young All-Stars and the All-Star Squadron and the JSA and everything came up in the conversation 
And lo and behold, we find out, hey, we're both huge fans of the Justice Society of America and Earth 2 and the Young All-Stars. And it just it all just spun into this wonderful mix of we had such a blast doing that episode. Why stop? Why not explore it further? Why not? You know, at that time, nobody was touching no, it that was, material you know, at all. The original trailer kind of pokes fun at that, actually. Right, yeah. But nobody so. was talking about, you know, Earth 2 or the JSA or any, you know, this was still, it's really funny to think of it this way, but that was still at the time when, uh, when there really were, you know, despite there being a lot of podcasts at the time, for the most part, the podcasts that were out there were general. You know, it was like, we're going to yeah. talk about comics, which is incredibly broad. There weren't a lot of niche shows talking about, like, one character or even one company. And so for us to narrow our focus into such, uh, at the time, such an obscure and untouched uh, field as Earth 2, I-, I think we touched a nerve with people. And... Well, uh, it, it, it also, it, yeah, I, I think in that that was the, the fun we were having too. Even even when we got into the great email scandal of two thousand nine, <laughs> which I, I have to mention this because I, I texted you when it happened. Right? Uh, yes. A, a gentleman contacted me on Facebook, friended me, and he he told me he was making his way through tales. And you know, when people say, you know, we're, I'm starting with the first episode, especially with something like From Crisis to Crisis, which is, you know, like 165 episodes at this point. Mm-hmm. So when someone says, I'm starting all the way back at episode one, I get like this this panicked feeling, like, holy crap, that sucked. Why are you listening to that? <laughs> you know, listen to the newer stuff. We sound so much better. But I was just like, oh, that's really nice of you. And uh, for those of you who have not followed the show, maybe picked it up. Uh, when we started All-Star Squadron, where I think the show kind of rebooted itself, even though we we kept the same numbering because we're not Marvel or DC. And that was pithy. I apologize. Well, no, I used the word pithy wrong again. That was snarky. Um, But uh, in the early part of the show, we we dealt with this email uh, because we were really big about reading the emails. And Scott and I... Basically, and this will happen with the both of us, we'll make an offhand comment, (laughs) not having any thought into it, and suddenly it becomes a thing. And basically what we were complaining about was that the... the, And my wife says being wussies, no, not at all, actually. (laughs) Um... We we were we were talking about the fact that the the jocks that picked on us when we were in school for liking comic books, their descendants were now wearing comic book t shirts. Right. And that kind of rubbed us the wrong way. We were not trying to say that they shouldn't be allowed to do it. It was just one of those things where it was just like, Man, come on. And you would have thought we said that Mickey Mouse was bigger than Jesus Christ. You know, you know, you, you would have, th- this was like a Beatles level, you know, crap storm. It touched a nerve in people. It really did. And we spent like five episodes dealing with it in the emails until oh, we were finally like, you know, we're not talking about this anymore. So that stops and years go by, four years go by. And I'm sitting there one day at work, and I get a Facebook message from this guy. So are you saying that uh, jocks can't can't that people like sports? Can't? I'm like, what? 
And I started laughing. And no, I did not say yes. And I wrote back to him. I'm like, oh, God, you got to that. And I explained, no, if you listen to future episodes, we kind of explain ourselves further and all that. But it was just funny that that was that, you know, it had been four years since we talked about it. It had been four years since, you know, it had been years really since I'd even thought about it because we had moved on beyond that. The All-Star Squadron, as I said, when we started with that, it really became kind of a brand new show almost. And just, <laughs> just to, to, to know that somebody was listening to it fresh and it touched a nerve with them now, it was kind of funny. So, and I'm saying all of that, that if you're going through the back catalog and you get to that episode... No, we're not saying that you can't like sports and 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 like comics. So, you know, they're they're not mutually exclusive. But still, I just thought that was hilarious. Wait a minute, dude! I think that's exactly what I was saying. <laughs> no, gonna, I'm kidding. It's gonna get you're gonna get us in trouble. Move along, move along. <laughs> and we were such different people back then too. It's it's kind of interesting <laughs> to 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 see that to see kind of you know we were I think I think we were a little more Randy. Oh, a little yes. more, a little more willing to kind of stick our necks out and say kind of not so much controversial things, and now we're a little more reserved, which is kind of funny when you think about it. You know, it's <laughs> funny. I'm not sure exactly when this show will uh, will come out, and we will talk a little bit about that in a moment. But uh, it's funny because as we record this right now, I just recorded last night with uh, with Chris Honeywell. Recorded uh, Star Trek Monthly Monday for. Uh, January 2014, and uh, we were talking about the exact same thing, uh, how much filthier we were in the early days of Two True Freaks than uh, than what I like to think that we are these days. So it's nice to think that maybe I've matured and, and mellowed out a little bit. Um, some will say lost my edge, but I disagree with that completely. But uh, Well, I think <clears throat> when you're, you know, for me it was a lot of, being kind of angry at what was going on in the industry at the oh, time. Yes. And then I walked away for a little while and gained some perspective. And I've also had some personal things happen that kind of reoriented my thinking. Mm-hmm. So, but I think, you know, when you start out doing something like this and, you know, you, you, you're basically, everything's wide open and you, you, you go in thinking, I don't care what anybody thinks. I don't care what DC, I don't care what Marvel, I don't care what the writers, I don't care what the artists think. I'm just going to say what I want to say. And then you realize that even though you're entitled to your informed opinion, maybe sometimes it's not the best idea to express it Mm -hmm. because you don't know the whole story and maybe there's a lot of personal stuff going into it that doesn't really have anything to do with the, the product itself. You're just not liking what's going on in general and it's manifesting itself as that, you know, I, I remember listening to the early episodes of TTF before you guys even had the regular formats. And it was a lot of, I, I remember specifically there were, there was so, something about downloading where you, you had a very specific opinion. <laughs> that was opinion. the very first episode. Yeah. And you had a very specific opinion about it. And then I'm listening to the Back to the Bins Christmas special, and it's and and you had kind of a different take on it, and it and I didn't take it as ah oh, Scott's you know going back on what he said. I go no, you know to me it was always no, like me, 
he's just gone through kind of a process where I, I don't want to call it maturing because we're still talking about comics. <laughs> so, you know, there's only so much maturing that can go there. But I think there's kind of a responsibility as a host that, you know, you want to be entertaining. You want to put out your opinion. And you want to be honest with the people that you're, you know, trying to reach. But at the same time, you know, any, any, like Jack Stanton said in the movie Primary Colors, any jackass can burn down a barn. Right. You know, so I, I, I think, uh, I think, I haven't listened to those early episodes of Tales, but uh, I, I wonder what it's like for people who listen to new episodes now and then go back and listen to old episodes. Yeah, I'd be very. What they As a really matter of think. fact, I I might start listening back through the through the <laughs> original episodes just so that I can re, you know make notes of like things that we said that we would follow up on and you know story points <laughs> and, and, and things like that. Yeah, up. never. Well, you know, I mean, I don't remember last week, let alone you know what I said two years ago. So might I forget everything I say as soon as I say it on a podcast. That that's my <laughs> weird thing. I, I I will sit there and talk for hours about something, and then. Go on and wow! Oh, how do you get a leg cramp sitting down? If I do um, the editing, I I typically will remember it a lot better because I'll end up listening to the episode fifteen times before it finally gets <laughs> released. But if I don't do the editing, then yeah, I tend to be the same way. I don't remember what the hell I said. So how do you get a leg cramp sitting down? God, I'm <laughs> such a fanboy. Um, what, are you sitting like yoga style or something? No, I'm like just your, sitting your in ankles chairs. behind your neck or something. <laughs> what do you? And the webcam's on, and the show has begun. So, <laughs> sorry, that was a well. That joke fell flat. Very good. Um, <laughs> but we really wanted to come back to this. Scott and I have had a couple. To be fair, I think we can we can kind of reveal that by the time this sees the light of day, five will be in the can. Uh, right. And uh, you know, we're just really wanting that if we're going to start releasing it, we want to get enough recorded ahead of time right of you know we're doing tales and to you know this this show's a little different uh but still within the the tales universe i guess well here's here's kind <laughs> of how it so works bold. is you know when when we started out the show <clears throat> pardon me when we started out the show we started out covering when the JSA returned in the pages of, uh, of a book called All-Star Comics. This was back in uh, the 1970s. And so we covered All-Star Comics from the time the JSA came back until the cancellation of that series. And then we followed them when they jumped over to the page of Adventure Comics for a while, and we, we covered all that material. And then finally, in the, uh, in the early 80s, uh, Roy Thomas and Rich Buckler started up a book called All Star Squadron, which is a personal favorite of Mike and I. We could not wait to get to that material. We were just chomping at the bit ever since we started the show to cover All Star Squadron and and just having a blast while we were doing it. And we got into the 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 thirty issues of All Star Squadron. I forget the exact issue number, something like thirty three, I think. And at the same time, another book, an, an ancillary book called Infin- uh, Infinity Inc. had started up at the same time. So we were covering both books. And, you know, like I said, just having a blast doing that, but just time and life and circumstances just kind of got in the way. And that's the honestly, that's the only reason the show ever went away was that it just became hard to get to that particular show. We both have so much going on in our personal lives. 
But we had had always intended to bring the show back. We had wanted to bring the show back. And now the truth can be told that Mike and I, over the course of, I think it's been about a year, have recorded shows. We've sat down several times and, hey, Tails is back. And we'd record two or three episodes and then we'd slack off for a while and not, you know, and not record for a while. A couple months would go by, we'd record another episode or two. So we were trying to build up a backlog to really, truly bring the show back. So anyway, fast forward to today, we have those shows in the can. They're recorded, they're edited, they're, they're all ready to go, but we just, we lacked a couple more episodes. In the meantime, like I say, probably about, I'm thinking about a year has gone by since we recorded the initial episode that was going to be, you know, the grand return of the show. Mm-hmm. So now that show is going to sound a little bit funny, at least to my ears, listening to this, uh, yeah, especially if we were at all topical within that episode, it's just going to sound a little funny. So what we had decided was, okay, let's, you know, if we're going to do this, let's do it. Let's truly bring the show back. Okay, fine. But I just had this idea of we need a proper, and I say proper in air quotes, we need a proper comeback special. What could we do? We've already recorded these other episodes. I don't want to re-record. I don't want to retouch the material. But we need something that's like a comeback show that we can just plug in to place to say, okay, we're back, and then move forward from there. So I had this idea. You know, it's a book that I picked up, and I'm pretty sure we... I talked about this in the in a podcast when I actually had picked this book. It was probably an episode of uh, Back to the Bins. I remember when you found this book. <laughs> and uh, it was a, 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 what do you call it, flea market find. And it turns out that this book contains a story that is incredibly relevant to the era that we were slowly creeping into with our coverage of the All-Star Squadron. And Infinity Inc., an era that that Mike and I are really looking forward, really itching to get to, because we're still hoping, even after all this time, that this is still virgin podcasting territory, and that is the Crisis on Infinite Earths, something that we both hold very near and dear as, you know, this was just an event in comics, specifically in DC Comics. So we've been slowly making our way towards that. Well, this story is, I'm just going to call it what I think it is. This is the secret origin of the crisis on infinite earths. This is kind of the initial setup and backstory for how we got to crisis. So that's why I wanted to cover this as kind of a, a kind of a lead up special to where our coverage is headed with tales of the JSA. So I hope that makes sense. And, uh, and I hope you enjoy the show. Did you have anything else before we dig right into this, Mike? Um, Baba Booey? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just wanted to uh, to kind of add to that. We we really were, back in March of 2013, like really gung-ho about getting the show back together. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like you said, we had four episodes in the can. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and then I, you know, then, you know, to be honest, my wife got into a really serious car accident and that kind of set me back podcasting for about three months, actually. And, uh, it, it, uh, I mean, even, even another show, which had been coming out pretty regularly from crisis to crisis went away for like almost six months. So now that things are a little calmer and we, we have the backlog, uh, I'm, 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 I
<laughs> Rachel's right. I shouldn't say any of this because <laughs> I'll jinx the entire situation. <laughs> well, so, I, uh, I think you shouldn't only in the sense, and don't get me wrong. I'm, 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 you know, I'm touched to hear you say that, but I, I don't think you should because then it makes it sound like you're taking blame. I don't think there's honestly, I don't think there's any blame to be placed. It's just between the both of us, you and I equally, things just happened. It, it just became one of those things where, you know, life, work, circumstances, schedules more than anything. We're just like, man, you know, I wish we could get to this and we just can't. But that being said, I don't want to scare the listeners into thinking that, well, you know, if it's been so hard for two years, then why do you think you can do it now? Well, because we're damn determined to. That's why. Because we just want to get back to it. I don't know about you, dude, but I think that the whole opener of this show proves one thing. We've missed talking to each other, so I think this is going to be a like lot this, of fun. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we, we still do Comics Monthly Monday, but that's kind of a different dynamic altogether. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think also, more than anything, I, I really want to do this because of uh, Mike Voiles, actually. Um, I w- last year, uh, I did a special, Two True Freaks special with Bob Fisher and Paul Spataro and Andy Leyland uh, about the adventures of Superman mm-hmm. where we, we were just going to spend a couple hours talking about the adventures of Superman. <laughs> Isn't that like five hours? That's <laughs> four hours. It's almost four hours. It's, it's not quite four hours, but it's, it's close to it. And I just, I was, I, it had been so long and, and everything had changed from the last time I did this. Cause I was really good at the lips and thing. I could upload an episode in that <clears throat> real easy. But I realized at that point that even though the site had been around for the longest time, uh, and I had never signed into it like that. I had never tried to upload an episode. And so I asked him, I go, what, what, what's my password again? Because <laughs> I'm really kind of curious. He's just like, he gives me all the information, and then the next message is, so does this mean Tails is coming back? Aww. And I'm just like... <laughs> I get and I'm just like, you know... If he's that excited about it, we really got to get this back going, going together. Because, uh, and then uh, also, I, I wanted to thank, and I don't know if we've ever thanked him for this. Charlie Niemeyer kind of kept the show alive uh, because he would actually play if he was covering a Bronze Age issue that had a host said that we reenacted. He would plug that in, <laughs> and I just think it's funny that we. Uh, that we did something that, that we did just to amuse ourselves. Really. Right. Those hostess ads were just because we thought it was funny. That somebody thought enough of it to put it in their show. <laughs> and uh, Shag and, and, and Rob over at the Aquaman uh, Shrine and Firestan, Firestorm Fan. Firestorm Forum? Yeah. Firestorm Fan and the uh, the Fire and Water podcast have uh, joked about doing a hostess podcast. And I was laughing along with them. And then when I was listening to that episode, I was like, no, we've talked about that. Yes. Yes, we did. We were actually going to, going to form another show that was just going to be enactments of the, the, um, Twinkies ads and stuff. I think I still like that idea actually. Well, now that Twinkies are back, um, thankfully, you know, cause God knows we needed more fattening foods in this country. <laughs> um, so, but no, I just, I, I'm just, I'm just really excited, and uh, I, re- this is such a weird book. <laughs> this is such a weird story we're about to talk about. You just gave me before we get into that. You just gave me an idea. I've been trying to figure out literally since before we went on hiatus. That means over two years. For over two years, I've been trying to figure out a contest that I could do for a couple of books that I have. I have issues 
I believe it's one and two, if I'm not mistaken, of All-Star Squadron. Now, I will preface this with saying that they're not in the best of condition. I mean, all the pages are there, and they have covers, but they're just, they're not pristine men, okay? I just want to make that clear. But I wanted to come up with a contest to give them away to a listener, and just could never think of anything. I have an idea. Judged purely by the two of us and what we think the winner is, I want to hold a contest for who's most excited that Tales of the Justice Society of America is back. (laughs) If you can prove that you are the most excited listener, then those books will be yours. How does that sound? That that works. I I don't know how you... (laughs) Don't send hookers. That's all I'm going to ask. It's a nice gesture, but we're both married men who love our wives. So... (laughs) I mean, Demonzo has a, has enough of a problem sending us those interns, right? Uh, so God, you got to send it back, and then you worry about you know, like what are their families thinking about this? <laughs> and, 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 and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get Dufo into trouble, and 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 now he's got somebody impersonating him. Have you heard this? No. Okay, so I you know I've gotten messages from Dufo on my phone, and mm-hmm. you know they're 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 very loud, and then. You know, Sean Engel play, has a trailer where apparently Dufo, who sounds like Marlon Brando all of a sudden. I have heard this. I'm I, I'm confused. I mean, is is that like an actor playing Dufo? Or is <laughs> Dufo once again trying to, you know, do a tax dodge? I mean... Well, you know, there was, that, there was that attempted assassination there back in the... Uh, God, when was that? The 70s, I think. And so he has been known to... Hire folks out. It's it's kind of one of those Mandarin scenarios. Oh, I, <laughs> but, uh, oh, I just completely spoiled that movie. <clears throat> anyway, before uh, I the spoil- movie has been oh, the movie's been out on DVD for like well over a month now. I think it's okay. <laughs> well, before I spoil anything else, let me spoil this comic. Um, so, in case you're wondering, in case you haven't been to the website or read the blurb for this or whatever, and you have no idea what we're covering. We're going to go ahead and get into the issue for this time around. So strap in, folks. This is rather a lengthy synopsis. I will warn you ahead of time. We are covering today Green Lantern, second series, number 40. This is the October 1965 cover dated issue, meaning it is older than I am and holding up about as well, too, because it's falling apart. (laughs) There are many things that are that, so congratulations. (laughs) It was actually... Uh, Screw you. I just realized. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad I was able to sneak that in. Very good. Dude, I'm barreling towards 40. Almost. Uh, Let's see. This book was actually on the stands. This is according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. This was on the stands October 26th, 1965. The cover is by Gil Kane and one of my favorite inkers, Murphy Anderson. Really, really nice cover. And it depicts... This, uh, it almost looks like an arena of sorts, and you've got Hal Jordan charging towards his counterpart, um, Alan Scott, and you've got the Guardians, and they look especially, and I always thought the Guardians were creepy anyway, because for one thing, they're sky blue, right? Yes. For the thing, they're midgets, and midgets, as everybody knows, just creep me the hell out, right? <laughs> Plus, they all look like Julie Schwartz. So there you go right there. This is nightmare-inducing stuff, folks. One of those guys actually kind of looks like Mort Wessinger, the one that's <laughs> behind uh, 
Green Lantern's uh, elbow oh, on yeah. the uh, right-hand side of the cover. Yeah. See, I noticed that they all look slightly different, so I wondered if they were supposed to be modeled on somebody. And, and editors, actually, that makes sense. I can see that because they're not yeah. identical. You know, it's really funny looking at this. I don't know if they were doing it on purpose, but, you know, Hal looks like Gil Kane, Hal Jordan. Mm-hmm. But Alan looks like Martin O'Dell, Green Lantern from the Golden That's, Age. You know, you're abs- I didn't catch that. That's a good catch. He really does. So he- I don't know if they were doing that on purpose, but it makes for a really dynamic cover. Uh, in my opinion, this is a classic, classic book. Oh, I mean, yes. you really can't, you know, as far as important touchstones of the Silver Age of DC, mm-hmm. uh, this is right up there. Not as important as, as Flash of Two Worlds, but it's up there. It, it, it's really up there. It's in the top five, uh, top five at least. This is one of those books that, for me, you know, seeing this just you know, sitting at a flea market just really struck me because, you know, it's every once in a while, it's one of those things where you'll see a book and instantly you'll know, oh my God, I know, I know how important that book is. And that's exactly what this was when I saw it. I was like, there's no way I'm not buying that. Because ordinarily, you know, an an issue of Green Lantern, I'd be like, nah, Green Lantern. But when I saw this, I was like, oh, wait a minute, I need to own that one. But uh, you got this cover on it, so you've got the guardians in the background, and they're they're all kind of sitting in judgment, like the like the floaty heads in Superman the movie. And one of them is saying, "Turn your power ring and uniform, Hal Jordan. Alan Scott is replacing you as the Green Lantern of Earth." And and uh, Hal Jordan saying, "Yeah, the hell he is," and he's charging at uh, Alan Scott. It looks really really cool. <laughs> Says, you I really want somebody to go in there and, and, and put that dialogue in there. <laughs> <laughs> Says, you've claimed for it, so here it is, a power pack novel. By the way, I'm so glad that they stopped calling comics novels after a while, because that used to be <laughs> nuts. Yeah, because it's long, but it's not novel length, okay? Uh, co-starring the original and modern-day Green Lanterns in a fight to the finish, the secret origin of the Guardians, which is really cool. But again, I would like to call this the secret origin of secret origins of the Crisis on Infinite Earths. So anyway, cover price, the original cover price on this was a mere 12 cents. 12 cents, that's crazy. Story was by John Broom. Art in the interior is by same penciler Gil Kane. But the inks are by Sid Green, who does a really fantastic job, but I can't help but be slightly disappointed because I was really hoping that Anderson was also the interior inker. But that's not to say that Green doesn't do a really good job. Again, the story is entitled Secret Origin of the Guardians. Now, our tale begins in, of all places, Gotham City. And if we're talking about a DC Comics uh, superhero story in that setting, then, you know, who else are you going to expect to see than Green Lantern? But yeah, you know, because, dear reader, we're talking about the Gotham City of an alternate universe, the universe of Earth 2, a world very much like our own, but slightly different. So on this world, Green Lantern is secretly an older gent by the name of Alan Scott. And Alan Scott is now the president of Gotham Broadcasting, and as we look in at him, he's uh, just leaving a, what they're calling here, a come-as-you-were party. I've never heard of this in my life. And this party was intended as a celebration of Alan Scott's 20-year journey from lowly radio announcer to what he is now, head honcho of Gotham Broadcasting Company. 
So outside as he's leaving the party, Scott and what they're calling here his Man Friday, Doiby Dickles, they drive off in Doiby's cab called Goitrude. Yeah, everybody is in on the gag with this. Uh, what is this supposed to be? Like a Brooklyn accent or whatever? It's kind of yeah, silly. Soyvis that don't make you noivis. <laughs> I did actually get a kick out of that. Alan and Doiby talk about how swell the party was and how much fun it was to pre, uh, to pretend to be back in their old lives, you know, back in the days of comics gone by, when this message comes over the radio. A sizable meteor is headed for the city. <laughs> That's exactly what they call it. Wasting no time, Alan Scott transforms into Green Lantern, and he quickly spots the meteor and fires a beam at it from his ring. But miraculously, his beam seemingly has no effect on the target, and it passes straight through it. A noise from below draws Green Lantern's attention. It seems that Doiby was more intent on watching him in action than he was in watching the road and where the hell he was going, and he plowed Goitrude right into a tree. The tree snaps and it topples over and it's threatening, I guess it's threatening to crush the cab or something, but it looks like it's so tiny that it wouldn't do any damage. That's the funny part of it. But uh, Doiby's, you know, hollering, hey, Green Lantern, help me out. So reacting instinctively, Green Lantern power beams the cab to safety and he deflects the tree. Now, I know what you're thinking. Wait, wait a minute. That shouldn't work, right? Because the Earth 2 Green Lantern's ring can affect wood. That was its only weakness, right? So obviously something screwy is going on here. But after some playing around to make sure of what the situation is, it's confirmed. His power ring is no longer powerless against wood. Green Lantern is thrilled, and he surmises that that screwy meteor must have had something to do with this, and he decides to share the good news with his buddy and his Earth-1 counterpart, Hal Jordan. So Alan Scott crosses dimensional barriers and messages Jordan to come out and play. So at Ferris Aircraft, where Hal Jordan works, Scott attempts to show his newfound power, uh, you know, show off his newfound power for his pal by picking up a crate with his ring. But suddenly he can't get his wood up. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. That was horrible. Wow. Okay. (laughs) I had to throw it in. We went there this early in the show. Congratulations. How bad. Well, I still am the one that dropped the first F-bomb on the show, so there you go. <laughs> so embarrassed and more than a little confused, Scott takes Jordan's suggestion to just plain ask his ring, okay, what is going on? The ring actually speaks, and it begins to tell the two friends a tale, a tale that began long, long ago on the planet Oa. Many, many eons ago, the Owens were a peaceful, playful, studious people who, being immortals, contented themselves with science and sport. But one among them was not content. This was Krona, who had become obsessed with studying the origins of the universe and learning the forbidden secret of the beginning of time. Despite warnings by his fellow Owens not to tamper with such things, lest he risk bringing instant destruction to all things as passed down through ancient legends, Krona built a time viewer to witness the moment of cosmic birth. Peering through the mists of time, Krona is, at last, witness to an unbelievable sight. A giant hand reaching out of the void with a swirling galaxy in its palm. But Krona's triumph is short-lived as a cosmic bolt destroys the viewer and very nearly uh, Krona himself. The damage, however, has been done. Krona's tampering 
has done something to the universe, something dreadful. Evil was loosed upon the face of creation. It spread swiftly from world to world, and hatred and violence grew and flourished. And the Owens knew that one of their own, Krona, was to blame. So they confronted him, but he remained defiant. Being an immortal, Krona had no fear of punishment. But this proved to be his downfall as the peaceful Owens, sworn to uphold the law and sacred taboo against learning the origins of the universe, sentenced Krona to an eternal existence as a disembodied beam of energy, forever wandering the stars, awake and fully conscious, but unable to affect or be affected by other living things. And so Krona remained, a bodiless streak of light, for 10 billion years. While the Owens evolved, set themselves up as the guardians of the universe, created the Green Lantern Corps, and slowly, over time, forgot about their obsessed brother and his crime, Krona continued streaking through every corner of creation and beyond, plotting to someday regain his bodily form. This he eventually accomplished by traveling to the alternate world of Earth 2, where he appeared as the Meteor. And while Green Lantern power beam Krona's energy form, the Owen was able to stow away inside of Alan Scott's ring until, as Krona predicted, Scott traveled to Earth-1 to hang out with his pal uh, Hal Jordan. Once returned to his native dimension, Krona was then able to resume a corporeal form again and is once again on the loose in an unsuspecting universe. So Jordan thinks it's high time to notify the, gardens, uh, the Guardians about all this, but they actually contact him first and tell him that they're on their way to Earth to set up like an emergency command center and that it's up to he and the Earth 2 Green Lantern to stop Krona at all costs. That's chapter one. <laughs> Part two begins with the uh, ring-wielding buddies battling the elements and Mother Nature gone wild. Seems that the evil emanating from Krona has made the planet itself go berserk. And don't worry, gentle listener, because I don't know how the hell this process works either, so just roll with it. That's what I had to do. This scene is it's interesting, as we witness the Green Lanterns stop a tidal wave and this pseudo-volcano thing um, and all this other stuff, but specifically how each of them tackle the same problem, but in completely unique and different ways, that was actually kind of cool. They're both Green Lanterns, but they both approach everything completely differently. That was kind of fun to watch. Anyway, Hal and Alan deal with all of this until eventually the Guardians arrive on Earth, and their presence alone, it seems, is enough to restore order to the elements. Then, here's the twist. They order... Hal Jordan to come see them right away. And once at Guardian's headquarters, Jordan is rewarded for all this hard work by being relieved of duty. Yes, oh, I thought you were going to say that they they gave out Order 66 to kill all the other Green Lanterns in the universe. So that's a few. I'm, fe- I'm feeling better now. <laughs> it looks like the Guardians, for whatever reason, are done with Hal Jordan. They order him to take off his uniform and, uh, or to turn in rather, his uniform. And his power ring, he is being replaced by Alan Scott. End of chapter two. So part three opens with an update uh, at last on Krona himself. And I'm thinking, well, it's about time we actually see the guy. And we learn that, yes, he is indeed back to his old tricks again. He's trying to spy a look at the beginning of creation. And that he has somehow possessed Alan Scott. And not only that, but he has exerted his will over the Guardians headquartered on Earth 
And that was it was at his mental suggestion that they issued their edicts from the end of the last chapter that Hal Jordan give up the mantle of Green Lantern to Alan Scott. So Alan, uh, Al, Hal rather Jordan, being a rugged, fearless test pilot, does what any '60s manly man would do when faced with this unfortunate turn of events. He throws a complete hissy fit, pointing out what a good little trooper he's been, and why are they doing this to him? So he flat out refuses to re- uh, surrender his ring unless Alan Scott can best him in, in personal combat, which I kind of liked. I thought that was, well, that's only fair, right? So this, friendly reader, was just about my favorite part of the entire story as Hal Jordan, cocky jet fighter jock, gets his ass kicked but good. This was actually really cool. And I got to thinking, you know, what exactly did he expect to happen here? Because not only does he have uh, what I expect is a far greater handicap. He's completely useless against anything that's colored yellow. <laughs> that's a pretty hefty handicap. But also, Alan Scott has 20 years more experience on him. His yeah. thing's based on magic. And he's also being secretly controlled and augmented by the superior mind and willpower of Corona. So, as expected, Alan Scott makes very, very quick work of Hal Jordan and leaves him uh, beaten and unconscious at the end of this part. So, with Hal Jordan uh, beaten, the Guardians are subdued, the Earth-1 Green Lantern is in his thrall, there is nothing to stop Krona. Returning to his own body, he plans to finally fulfill the mission he set himself so long ago and gaze upon the secret origin of the universe, while his fellow Owens are helplessly forced to watch. So Jordan, meanwhile, he is revived. Okay, this is where it gets really strange. He's revived by a... This is where it gets really strange. This is it. (laughs) He's revived by a telepathic summons from Alan Scott. I'm going to say that one more time. He's revived by a telepathic summons from Alan Scott. Yeah, that made absolutely zero sense to me, too. So it seems that uh, if you should ever happen to find yourself, dear listener, in a non-corporeal state, remember that uh, you suddenly get to gain telepathy. It's actually it's pretty awesome, it sounds like to me. That's what I gained from this part, anyway. So, anyway, Scott tells Jordan to get his ass in gear and go stop Krona already, because there's very little time left. So, Jordan flies through a stormy sky right out of Crisis on Infinite Earths, that part I really liked, to Krona's location where he engages the evil Owen in a power ring-wielding battle of wills. And Krona attempts to put the same cheap trick he pulled uh, during the earlier fight when he was in possession of Alan Sky. He tries to pull the same trick. And, which is mainly to blast Jordan while protecting himself behind this yellow shield. But miracle of miracles, Jordan's power beam actually punches straight through the yellow barrier and takes Krona out. And I'm like, what the hell? So freed from his mental enslavement, or rather their mental enslavement, the Guardians destroy Krona's new time viewer, and then they once again revert him to a bodiless energy form forever doomed to wander the stars. And this time they make it so that it's never again going to come anywhere near a planet. Poor Krona. So Jordan and Scott congratulate themselves on their quick wits and their clever thinking and all that in deciding beforehand to switch rings, which is a great idea, except the hell did that happen? (laughs) (laughs) 
So uh, Scott decides that he's had enough of all this. He goes back to his uh, his home dimension and everything, leaving Hal Jordan one last lonely panel at the end of the book to enjoy the sun, the peacefulness, the beauty, knowing Krona can never return. So, Mike, I got to ask you, what did you think of Green Lantern number 40? Um, the 1,000-foot view, uh, for lack of a better way of saying that. Recently, we did, a, we did a Comics Monthly Monday where we talked about a very famous issue of Doom Patrol. Where yes. The, the, the Doom Patrol gave their lives for 14 people that they had never met in a town that they had no connection to. And I made the point in that episode that there are some stories that you hear over and over and over again, either by reading Who's Who, or in, in that case, it was you know the, the years that they spent talking about that story in New Teen Titans, that when I finally read the original version of it, I was just like, yeah, that was kind of disappointing. The first time I ever heard about any of this was the first time I read Crisis on Infinite Earths number seven. Mm-hmm. And I'm not trying to skip ahead to that. Right. We, do, we are going to get ahead of that. But, you know, we, we call this the secret origin of the crisis because in that issue, they reveal how this story and this character had a lot to do with not only the creation of evil, but the creation of something else. Right. And... This story, this was always one of those stories that was, you know, kind of like at, at arm's length. It's I knew it was out there. I had heard about it again and again. And then Kurt Busiek and George Perez brought back Krona in the JLA Avenger story. Yes. And despite having the Crisis on Multiple Earths, the team-up volume one, since basically it coming out, I had only gotten through like three stories in it. Because I have this... Reading Silver Age books is almost like reading another language. Uh, you yes. kind of have to reorient yourself just because it's written in such a different style, not only from today, but from when I started reading comics. Mm-hmm. So I was, there was this part of me that was kind of like, eh, I want to read this. I got to read this for the show now. God, I hope I like it. And I liked it. I really did. I, I think goofiness aside, this was a worthy first team up of Alan Scott and Hal. Alan and Hal never had the friendship that Barry and Jay did. Right. Uh, you know, th- there was always something special about the Flashes getting together. And, and, and on a past episode of the show, I believe, we covered a Alan Scott Green Lantern crossover. And, and, and it, and it kind of struck me when we read that, and that was from the 70s, that it wasn't so much like, hey, old friend, how are you? It's just like, hey, we both share that title. Right. And and that's pretty much it. So this was an awesome story, in my opinion. Mainly because it had so much packed into it. Because you have this whole introduction of Alan at the beginning. And at first I was like, what what is Barry Allen doing in this uh, book, but then I realized his hair is all slicked back, and Barry had a crew cut. So, but you know, we get Doyby Dickles, and who's a character I absolutely love, uh, and 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 it did take me years to realize what Doyby meant. Um, and I felt really thick headed 
<laughs> once I made that connection. But then again, I'm the guy that missed the fact that Lois Lane was kind of dressed like Wendy from Peter Pan and Superman the movie until my wife pointed it out to me. So <laughs> my wife just <laughs> laughed at me. Um, I like how it was, you know, you're right. You know, what is a come as you were party? You know, <laughs> what what does that even mean? It I mean, that's filthy. It's all. Yeah. It's just like, like, like do, 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 do people like that worked at McDonald's come to this party and like a little paper hat? Yeah. <laughs> So, but it's just a way to introduce who this guy is and what he has to do with the story. We have not gotten to the point in Earth 2 stories where they have the graphic of the two Earths and then they have like Superman and Superman and Green Lantern and Green Lantern. And never even. Yeah, that's right. Because I remember us bitching about that in past uh, in past episodes that you can't ever get an Earth 2 story (laughs) that didn't say that didn't explain. But you're right. It doesn't ever even mention it just it's mentioned briefly as an editor's note that uh, oh by the way this is a parallel earth and that's it now now, now let me ask you that that's that's a question i was going to ask you okay there's an editor's note right here at the beginning about what earth 2 is and and mm-hmm. that's you know it's a non clunky way of explaining it cuz it doesn't take up story time but it's an editor's note from a caption and that's just that seemed kind of weird because I always got like the caption was the editor talking to you, kind of narrating for you. Mm-hmm. So why would you have an editor's note in a caption when you could have just explained it in the caption? That's a good point. So th- that's a that's a technical foul, but you know, it just was <laughs> it was just on my mind. Um, some people really don't like the Golden Age Green Lantern's costume, and to be fair, he's got a red shirt with a purple cape with a green lining. The green of his pants doesn't match that, and I just always got the sense that Alan Scott was just colorblind, and that he just kind of threw this whole thing together. Having said that, I, I I have a soft spot for Alan Scott. Oh yeah, and that has a lot to do with James Robinson and how he treated him in Golden Age. And it's going to be really funny when we get to Golden Age, by the way, because I reread that recently, and a lot of the stuff we have complained about over the years happens in that story, and yet I give it a complete pass. So. That's going to be a fun conversation to have. Well, you know, the thing uh, is, is that, you know, and again, uh, forgive me, this is spoiling ahead a little bit, but after the crisis and, and after everything that, that comes of these characters after the crisis on Infinite Earths, retroactively, Alan Scott is the badass of the Golden Age. Oh, absolutely. With, with Superman off the table, he's the most powerful superhero that Earth ever had. And he's that, the big guy. He's the big guy. And I, I kind of like that. You know, I... I can't remember how I felt as a kid about, uh, you know, Alan Scott, Green Lantern, you know, his outfit and everything. I I remember I've always thought it was odd that he was Green Lantern, yet so little of him truly is green. I always thought Red Lantern was a better name for him because, you know, I'm accustomed to the symbol, you know, your chest, you know, for, for the male superheroes, your chest pretty much denotes who you are. You know, if you have a giant bat, you're Batman. If you have a spider, you're Spider-Man. If you have a big S, you're Superman. Well, his is a, is a big red shirt. Now, granted, the emblem is a green lantern, but still, it just always seemed really weird to me where, you know, all the other, the latter-day green lanterns, they were primarily green. This guy, not so much green, and it just always struck me as weird. The one change I would make is I was never uh, a fan of his barber pole boots. I just always thought they looked really strange. <laughs> Well, that just goes back to the circus man 
outfits. And a lot of people, you know, it really came up this past summer because of a certain movie that we're not going to talk about. <laughs> um, and, and a certain costume change that happened two years ago. Where the argument is, is it underpants on the fir- on the outside or is it trunks? Right. And the, the argument that the people that made the changes put forward is that the costumes of the Golden Age were inspired by circus strongman outfits. So it's not underwear, it is trunks. This is just how those costumes looked. Right. And it always kind of confused me, especially going back, because uh, a couple years ago I sold it. In, in the meantime, but I bought really cheap the first Golden Age Green Lanterns archives. And if you want to read some really good Golden Age comics, track down those early Green Lantern books, because Bill Finger was doing a lot of great writing on that title. Mm-hmm. And I looked at that costume, and I'm like, you know, for a, for a time period that is not known for complicated art, that is a busy damn costume. Oh, yeah. And then I and then it hit me when that whole circus strongman thing was coming up. That's basically what we're seeing here in terms of his outfit. You know those. Uh, you know it looks more like uh, just you know detailing on the boot, but I think you know originally it was supposed to be straps, like he it was like laces almost, mm, and that was what was holding the I boots got up. That works. So I, I think that's where the costume comes from, and the fact that. It was not changed all that much. I mean, when when he became Sentinel in the 90s, uh, he got kind of a, a costume change revamp in the pages of Green Lantern Quarterly that I actually really liked. I liked that too, yeah. Uh, I thought it was a really neat costume, but the fact that the fact that when, when JSA came out in 99 and they were bringing all these characters back, that they just kept drawing him in that old costume, but just you know, got had such great artists working on that book that it always worked for me. I just I, I see it now, and yes, this is Gil Kane, and Gil Kane I really like his Green Lantern work. Um Hal constantly has a uh look on his face. Right. But, you know, that, that that's fine. That that's cool. Um but I just I just have a soft spot for the costume. The uh the origin of Oa and I don't know if you got this. This is on page seven of the story. It says, uh, their tremendous natural powers they evidenced often at the earliest age. Look, my child can already lift a great boulder by mental force. That reminded me of like the old Superman origin. Yes. Where you had the two Kryptonians walking down the street going, you know, he hasn't mastered calculus yet. Well, he's only five. Right. So that, I don't, that, that's what flashed through my mind. It's like, is that how you always show futuristic raises? By having the kids doing something that a, f- a normal baby wouldn't be. Okay, that's fine. That's cool. I'm, I'm good with that. So. Yeah, it's funny because I, I thought the same thing that uh, it, it was very, very uh, Golden Age Krypton like. Or is that Silver? I can't remember. Is that Silver Age? That, I guess no, that's more that, Silver I th- Age. That, that, that would be like late Golden Age. Yeah. Because it, was an, oh, it wasn't until 1948. Now, I'm going to preface this by saying in 1945, when Superboy came out, they actually showed his origin in the comics, and they showed Krypton, and everyone looked like they were wearing like old footballers' outfits. Right. Um, 
but that really didn't count for me because it was Superboy, and that wasn't the origin of Superman that would come later, written by Bill Finger. Right. In uh, Superman, I forget which issue number, number 53, I think it is. It was from 1948. Right. It has that great splash page of Superman looking like he just had way too much to drink. The right, his head swirling and, he and he's holding his head, yeah. Yeah, he's just regretting everything that happened in the previous evening, so <laughs> he can't believe he ate the whole thing. Um. One of the funny things about Krona is in Crisis, which is the first place I saw him, he was drawn by George Perez. Mm -hmm. And Perez makes characters look very distinctive. And what I always got a sense about Krona was he was a short, fat guy. You know, rotund. Not like fat, you know, like like I am. But but just, you know, (laughs) just thick around the middle. Here he's a giant... Like, through this entire issue, he is just towering over everybody. And that really surprised me, but I had to kind of check myself before I wrecked myself, because I was like, well, you can't say, well, they got it wrong, because this is the original version. Right. And it was only changed later, so that was kind of interesting to see. It's also kind of interesting that the image of the creator holding the universe hasn't really changed all that much. No. When Perez drew it in Crisis, it looks a lot like this. And I and I kind of appreciated that. Um, As we sit down to record this today, there was a, a news story today that was on, I think I saw it on Yahoo News, that NASA has captured a, a you know, one of their famous space photos of what looks like, they're, they're dubbing it the hand of God. Have you seen that picture? Uh, no, I was actually about to pull it up while we it's were talking. It's awesome, because it looks like that panel where where Crona uh, is watching that moment of creation. And I've always loved that, because I, I'm glad to hear you call it that, because that was actually one of my notes, was to ask you, how had you interpreted this panel over the years? Because I had always interpreted this quite literally, that he is seeing the hand of the creator reaching out yes. of the void. And, and you know, it's it's the creation moment literally like from the bible and i and you, I can, like and you can and you can put in whatever creator you want there That's right the thing i mean it, I, I always took it more biblical because one i was raised catholic and two dc never really talked about god but you always gotta that does look like a hand that is creepy isn't that cool <laughs> that is really weird um DC always, and it just turns out it's just a, a a mistake from one of the photographers put his hand on the plate, and that's how it got messed up. <laughs> I just ruined it completely. That's terrible. Uh, <laughs> that's not what it is, folks. It's an actual picture from NASA. No, um, DC, even when they would deal with, uh, even when they would deal with, like, um, magic talking about God, it was always God. You know, they may have fudged, you know, the creator or something, but I always got a sense that it was not because they were trying to push an agenda, but just because of everybody involved was of a certain religious persuasion that they were just talking about the biblical God. So, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this is whoever created the universe is holding the swirling mists of creation in his hand. And it's a really powerful image. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it really works here. The uh, the cavemen learning to kill. I always... This is a weird thing. And, and I realize this is me maybe picking nits. But... 
I always buy when they say this is how evil was introduced to the world or the universe. Like, he saw the creation myth. He wasn't supposed to see that. So there was a reckoning because of that. And that's how evil well, I, I was... in, in, infuses itself in the universe. And what I, what I have a problem with that is, is that takes away free will from us. Like, mm, I don't, I don't know though, because see, I really like this, and and it's funny because this really only occurred to me today because there's a mention on page seven at the bottom, it says games and sports rounded out their day. Truly, it was a kind of paradise they lived in, and it's ironic, I think, that uh, then it shows the giant frog races, and I'm thinking, I don't know a whole lot of people that if there were giant frogs <laughs> running around would consider that to be paradise, but anyway. All right, so they've established evolved society, uh, enlightened people, paradise, no crime, no war, you know, all this immortal, you know, they're immortal all the time in the world to enrich themselves and learn about their place in the universe. And then there's one of them that goes against what has been forbidden to, to, you know, for them to know and unleashes by not listening, by not heeding the warning, unleashes evil upon the universe. I mean, is that not the creation myth? Is that not the first chapter of the Bible? I mean, that's Adam and Eve. You know, they're in paradise. And everything that they could want has been given to them. You know, long life and an easy life and everything, but just don't touch this tree you know don't eat from the tree of knowledge and they do it anyway and basically everything that we're in now is because of that you know it it unleashed everything it unleashed i think the parallels are undeniable i don't know if that's intentionally what they're going for but it works and i like that i i think that's one of the reasons why this story has become one of those pivotal stories of DC comics because it works on a mythical level. It it's world building of the best kind. I really like it. Yeah. I I mean, it's not that I dislike it. It's just, it's, it's like when I watch shows about ancient aliens and they, Mm -hmm. you know, they, they, you know, they put forth that dude with the weird hair (laughs) that just gets freakier. The, the, the longer he's on TV, uh, you know, he puts forth the theory that all the technology that we have comes from alien influence. And, you know, my, you know, I was talking to my father, who I always considered to be kind of a well-reasoned person who doesn't usually take flights of fancy, that, you know, he and I were just talking the, you know, about a year ago, and he's just like, you know, I don't know if anything happened, but it's kind of weird that we went from barely flying to the moon in basically 20 years yep and you know does that was it reverse engineering and just to hear him say the words reverse engineering was kind of strange so on one hand that that's that's awesome to think about and you can kind of think oh that kind of makes sense you know how did we do it but also it kind of takes away from human achievement so you know because you you know if we were reverse engineering we were doing it in the most bass-ackwards way possible because we went to the moon with a computer that had less memory than a calculator. So, obviously, we weren't reverse engineering it enough uh, to, to, to get it to a to a higher level. But, 
it just it's it's one of those things that when I think about it, it kind of irks me, but I'm willing to go with it for the course of the story. It's not like, oh, this story, you know, this story and thus the entire DC universe is ruined for me. <laughs> it's, it's not like that at all. It's just, uh, I like free will. But anyways, that's just me. The um, We get to the end of the first chapter and I'm like, God, this was just one chapter? There's more? We're not going to the next issue? And that's my only real complaint of the issue, is that the first chapter is like half the book. And then you have the second and third chapter, and the second chapter just goes by in the blink of an eye. Second chapter could be easily excised from the book, too. Yeah, That really did occur to me that I think this story would flow a lot better without the second chapter. Because the second chapter... um, I I purposely gave it short shrift in my synopsis because it's just flat goofy. I mean, it literally says that because waves of evil are emanating off of Krona, that the earth revolts. And that's where, you know, it's not that suddenly there's some tectonic activity or something. I mean, literally, it's the earth rising up and going, no, this is wrong, and you get these giant tidal waves in this. I, I still don't know what this one thing is. It, this this volcano leans over and spits rocks at Coast City. I'm like, what? <laughs> what? It, it's kind of like, you know, you're watching the day after tomorrow and they're like, hurricanes are developing in Scotland. It's like, no, hurricanes <laughs> develop in the ocean. And then, oh, God, really? I mean, because the dramatic moment of the second chapter is the Guardians firing Hal. Uh, and I'm kind of glad they got bodies because seeing the head floating on the the the, the gases kind of it it just looked like maybe they had much too much mexican food um does that part of the story make any sense because i i don't i don't think that that was explained by crona what what did that serve having them fire hal jordan is it just that he was unable to get Hal Jordan within his, you know, he wasn't able to mentally ensnare Hal Jordan, but he was able... The only thing I can I can think of is he was using it as a distraction. Like, this will keep Hal Jordan occupied. Right. Uh, and then it, it's an excuse to have a Marvel-style hero-versus-hero fight. That, you know, see, that was my, that was what I suspected as well, was that this was just to have, you know, somebody for him to fight, like you say. Yeah, the hero and, hero versus hero. And to be fair, it Which really, again, separates the Green Lanterns from the Flashes in that you really didn't have Barry and Jay fighting it out in their first meeting. In fact, it was just all about, like, hey, we're both the Flash. Yeah, Let's in, team in, up and yeah, go kick some ass. Yeah. So, you know, the, the relationship... There was a there was a really neat um, story. I think it was called Green Lantern Flash Faster Friends. Yes, it was like a prestige format story, and it kind of explored the differences between the two franchises and how their you know their their legacy ca- characters got along. And and that's where my opinion was formed that Alan and Hal didn't hate each other. But I think their power bases were so different and their mandates were so different. I mean, we're talking about a man that formed his ring because 
He was in an accident, and a lantern told him to do it. You know, and then suddenly he has the power, you know, he has the power to shed his light over dark evil. And it's, you know, it's willpower, but it's also, like you said, it's magic. You know, and, and they pretty much changed that. They got really weird things in the Starheart, you get into all that, but... And then you have Hal Jordan, who's space cop. You know, he, he got his ring, which is a weapon, by the way was issued to him by the Guardians. You know, it was kind of like, that's his gun. And, you know, when Jeff Johns and Ethan Van Skyver brought Hal back, there was a there was a lot more of a police feel to Green Lantern, but it was kind of a badge and a gun, is, is what the ring was, all in one thing. So, you really wouldn't have... And, and also, you have Jet Pilot and Engineer. You know, so it's like two people that are completely different, even in, in their secret identity lives. So, outside of both being called Green Lantern, they really wouldn't have all that much to do with each other. Whereas, Jay was a scientist who took a smoke break and inhaled hard water, and that gave him his speed. And then you had Barry, who was hit by lightning, and they both ran very fast and, you know, had girlfriends and wives and... All that kind of stuff. So it kind of made sense that they would get along. So I just I just always liked that not everybody was chummy-chummy with their Earth 2 counterpart. Like, you didn't have to have that happen. So Yeah, some of them never even met their Earth 2 counterpart. Like Batman. Yeah. Sigh. Sigh. <laughs> but um, the ending to this is just really goofy. It's basically... Um, Batman disguised himself as Superman so he could overcome the kryptonite. And yes. and then Superman comes in. That, that that's kind of what happened here. Yep. Which I <laughs> it's, I don't have a problem with because by pointing that out, you you know, it, it, it's a classic comic book trope, yes. you know, the 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 switcheroo. However, I I don't I don't think that there's a place in the story where that could have happened. <laughs> because don't forget Krona had all right at what point had let's see i'm going to research this real quick because at what point it shows in a flashback where he did that okay so it was about the time i'm i'm guessing here but it looks like it's about the time that the two gls were dealing with all of the all of the upheaval stuff right because mm-hmm. it shows them flying towards like a like a black cloud billowing in the distance I, i'm just guessing here but that looks like it, it is definitely pre going to the Guardians and, and being, you know, for uh, Jordan being dismissed. So it's prior to that. Krona had literally come along and bumped Alan Scott out of his own body, leaving Alan Scott's soul, essentially, to just be, you know, discorporeal. So from that point on, all the way through to where, because um, at what point does he regain his body? The end of the story. See, at the very end of the story is where he comes in and he's like, well, thank God that we're all worked out. So there is literally no place in the, well, wait a minute. Let me think here. Let me think, let me think. No, that doesn't work. All right, so what I was going to say is, okay, so maybe in theory... 
and Scott says, hey, before we go do this, let's go to my body and switch rings. <laughs> that doesn't work because Krona already had the ring. So Krona is wearing Alan Scott's ring. That's the power ring he's using. So it doesn't work, dude. Not or wait, really. did he say Not that he all. created a duplicate ring, though? Wait a minute. Now that I think about that, I think he did say something about he had used like his mental wujmajig to make another ring. Is that a technical term? Uh, where do he say? By mental force, I have created a duplicate. Okay, here we go. By mental force, I have created a duplicate of Alan Scott's power ring. This is of vital importance in my plan. Okay, so he is not wearing Alan Scott's ring. Okay, that that makes a kind of sense then. So I guess what happened was after Alan Scott put himself inside of Hal Jordan's head, you know, basically they, they were sharing souls for a time then he must have flown to his body, switched rings, and then gone to battle Krona. That, that makes sense, I guess. They could, have, they could have bothered to explain that. But, uh, but why when you're just yeah. trying to get to the end of the story? <laughs> right. I mean, I'm not, I'm not trying to be snarky there. That's, that's an actual, it's, it, it's an actual point. You know, they, they weren't concerning themselves with that. And then, and, and, yeah, you kind of have to ask the question, but sometimes that's your only answer. Right. Is, well, they just didn't care. Right. So there you go. No, it's a, it actually is well thought out because, uh, again, I you know here it is. At the, at, the, at the very top of the very last page, Jordan says, the idea of switching power rings so that I had on the ring from your body instead of my own, was an inspiration, Alan. So he is explaining it. It's just not worded very well. Like, hey, thanks for <laughs> saying that before going to Battle Krona, that maybe we, that's how it should be worded. It, it doesn't... I mean, so obviously you switched rings because that's how you defeated the guy. So, But he's basically saying it's a good idea you thought to do that before I went to fight him, kind of. Th- so, I don't know, it just, it's very strange. But Hidden in the start- details... Snarky comments, thinking way too much into small details of the plot, all that to the side. This is a classic story. Absolutely. And it's, it, it's a good story, more, more than anything. It was entertaining. I did not get that same kind of dread that I get from some DC Silver Age stories. Mm-hmm. Where you're just like, wow, we're, we're going through a lot of text here, aren't we? <laughs> and we're really not getting anywhere. So it's kind of like Atlanta traffic, uh, Silver Age stories. <laughs> sometimes you zip right through and everything's okay. And sometimes you're stuck right there by the varsity. And all you're thinking about is, you know, if I get off right now, I could go eat the varsity. And then you're like, the varsity is terrible for you. <laughs> this is the greasiest food ever. But you still kind of want it because a fried peach pie sounds good at that point. So, you know, it's that. That, that. <laughs> That is the weirdest analogy for reading Silver Age comics ever, but I'm standing by it. <laughs> I have some notes on this sucker. Uh, I actually took quite a few notes, but I'll try to make it brief here. Before we get started, though, I have to ask you, do you know Hugh Parsons? No. I only ask because on the inside front cover here, it is clearly written in my issue... This book belongs to Hugh Parsons and G.I. Joe. 
It's a, okay. It's a GI Joe ad, but somebody has written in with a with a blue mar or you know, blue ink pen. Belongs to Hugh Parsons and GI Joe. So if you know Hugh Parsons, I have his Green Lantern number forty. <laughs> you really want him to know that though? Maybe he'll want it back. You're gonna think I'm crazy, but I went on Facebook today to try to find this Hugh Parsons because I've always wondered if I if I ever had an old comic that I'd you know sold or given away or put in a put in a yard sale or something with my name in it. I think it'd be kind of cool that, you know, how how many years is it? 40, let's see, 65? Yeah. That's what? That's uh, 49 years ago. It'd be kind of cool that out of the blue somebody says, hey, when you were a kid, did you have this issue? Because I got it. And I just think that'd be kind of cool. Of course, then they'd want it, and I'd be like, hell no. <laughs> but still. All right, a couple quick notes here. Um, this is the first Silver Age appearance of Joyby Dickles. I just thought that was worth pointing out. Uh, a character I've never really thought a whole lot about, to be honest with you. I, I think the comedic sidekick is generally annoying, but he's not too bad in this little story. I do get a kick out of the fact, though, that when he runs his car into that tree and then the tree cracks and is about to fall on his car, it's clearly not posing much of a threat. It's like a sapling. I mean... You know, it's it really doesn't look like it's going to hurt him at all. I liked the art in this. I liked it a lot. I Gil Kane is kind of an odd one for me. Typically, I do like Gil Kane, but he he can be a little hit and miss sometimes with me. I, as I think I have stated many many times, not I'm not much of a Green Lantern fan. I like the Golden Age Green Lantern. I respect his place in comics. I think he's pretty cool. Um, but I've never really read a whole lot of him. His solo adventures really don't interest me. And, you know, uh, ditto to several powers that for Hal Jordan, his adventures really don't interest me. I, I really have never cared for Hal Jordan. So I wasn't sure what I was going to think about this. I've only ever read a, a, just a, a mere handful of Silver Age Green Lantern tales, typically just the origin story that you know I've seen reprinted several times in, in many different um, DC books that I have. This was my first time reading this story. This is a story I've wanted to read for years because, like you said, you know it, it's been referenced so often, uh, especially in Crisis on Infinite Earths. And, uh, and I was really surprised to see how much I really like the art in this. This is going to sound like a strange thing to say, but I think this is a very modern style of art, comics art. Yes. And I liked it. I really liked it a lot, particularly uh, just a couple of panels that really jumped out at me. Page three, the second panel, the, the first panel essentially of uh, the Earth 2 Green Lantern going into action. That, that's just a really dynamic, it's a very Superman pose. But I really like that. I think it looks really nice. And then uh, the very first panel of the next page, page four, where he's power ringing the cab. I just think that looks really cool. It's very dynamic, very sleek, which is not a, a way that I tend to think of comics from this period as being sleek. They're usually a little bit clunky to me, but this one's not clunky. It looks really good. Uh, anyway, uh, page five, second panel. <laughs> Does that not look like Alan Scott is flying through a deck of cards? A little bit. It looks like he's flying through like uh, like a scene from Alice in Wonderland. But behind him, it's very Ditko verse too. It looks like like you know one of the realms of Doctor Strange or something. Uh, 
let's see what else I've got here. Oh, I love, love, love. Where is it here? <laughs> here it is. Page nine, first panel. Cronus says, I will never cease searching uh, to learn our origins. You cannot punish me. I am an immortal. I'm going to try that next time I get stopped for a speeding ticket. <laughs> you can't Just... pull me over. I'm an immortal. <laughs> I'm an immortal. Uh... You cannot punish me. Uh-huh. <laughs> On a serious note, though, what do you expect that 10 billion years spent as a disembodied yet cognizant mind, what would that do to you? Uh, you know, I... You, the standard joke would be you would watch a lot of people naked. But <laughs> as a disembodied figure, you don't really have the chemicals running through your body that make such things exciting. Right. So I just I just figured you would just go insane as a matter of course. Right. Yeah, just there's no there's no way around it. You're going crazy. You know, people make fun of the the Incredible Hulk Returns a lot, right? Uh, because they think it's silly. But the scene where Thor is actually talking about what it's like for him when he's not out, you know, not breathing, not dead, it's actually kind of a touching scene because you actually feel for the guy, right? You know, it's kind of like having an itch that you can't scratch, but it's all the time and it drives you crazy. Mm-hmm. So, I I am totally down with immortal beings going insane just because we really weren't meant to live that long. So yeah, unless you're frog racing, I guess, I guess you're <laughs> crazy. See, I'm sure that this has been dealt with as a ratcon or, or, you know, retract as the, the history of this character and the mythos of, of not only green lantern, but of DC comics has been filled in. I'm sure we've gotten more of the backstory of Krona pre-sentencing, but I'm wondering, was Krona really a bad guy? All he wanted was knowledge, so he comes across as a bit of an arrogant prick, but is he evil? And even after he comes back, at first, I was like, I'm not getting the evil thing, because that's one of the things that really bugged me with Chapter 2, was that waves of evil are emanating from and I'm like, what the hell is evil about this guy? He just wants to know where he comes from, right? And, but it, it wasn't until much later in the story where he has a line of dialogue, and let's see here, I made note of it, if I can find it real quick. Uh, here it I is. Mean, I mean, he says he's safeguarded, he's, he's done something, and I'm not sure how you could possibly do this, but he says he's done something that will safeguard himself whilst he risks all of the rest of creation to fulfill his mission to get a glimpse at the origins of the universe. Now that's pretty freaking evil, you know, that I'm willing to kill everything else so long as I get what I want. That I think that's the very definition of evil. But up until that point, I just wasn't feeling it, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, it's just basically he wants to see, like you said, where he comes from. And, you know, I think all your friends would try, probably try to dissuade you from watching, you know, the tape of your own conception. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that that's probably more of a you'll go crazy on a mental level, not just it will destroy the fabric of reality. So maybe it's a bad comparison. Right. Still. No, it's just... It's, it's very Silver Age. 
but it's very also, the, you know, the, this era of storytelling. And on a mythic level, really, when you when you when you look at it from a broad view, because it is said to be evil, that in and of itself makes it evil. is evil. Yeah, and it's just like you're not supposed to know that. So the fact that you're trying to find it out doesn't mean you're curious. It means you're a bad guy. So that's how I always just took it, and I never really put too much thought into you know why right. It's it's an evil thing to do, but I you know if if he's willing, my knowledge is more important than reality. Then yeah, you you've got you've got issues, and you need you need a timeout. I think a lot of it for me is that over the years, and, and I think that some writers have have done this. Um, I, I use lately as a relative term. But I think some writers eventually came to do this too. I question the guardians during this time. I'm sure that they were be me- they were meant to be taken strictly at face value. They were be- benevolent yes. beings that set themselves up as the guardians, and they were doing it because it was the right thing to do. Also, as this story implies, they were they were atoning for one of their own having done a horrible thing, unleashing evil into the universe. You know. By the way, did you notice absolutely no mention of the Manhunters in this? I'm sure before the man. Right. Yeah. I'm sure that was a retcon, but I just, you know, had to point that out by the way, the uh, top of the page 10 there, the third guardian from the left. Um, that's a blue Mr. Magoo, isn't it? <laughs> oh, Magoo. You've, You've done, done it, it again. again. You've unleashed on the evil on the universe. Um, also Chrono looks just flat silly at the bottom of page 10. He's going as he streaks into the uh, light. Chrono looks silly through most of it. <laughs> he does, actually. Well, he looks like a blue... Um, he looks like Ares, kind of. Also, you know, I didn't really notice until just now as we're flipping through the book here, what the hell is that belt that he has? <laughs> it's his WWE belt. Yeah, but it has Zeus's face on it. What is that all about? That's creepy. He, he likes Zeus. I guess. He's a big fan. Um, the whole thing where th- this always drove me crazy in books from this time. And blessedly, this one didn't have too much of the wild coincidence that the entire plot hinged on the coincidence, you know, but there was one of them I caught here where Krona's plan really hinged on the fact that as soon as, Alan Scott realized that his ring was no longer vulnerable to wood, that he would immediately travel to Earth-1 to tell tell Hal Jordan about it. If he hadn't done that, I mean, he probably would have done it eventually, but it could be a long time. But then again, to somebody that's been floating around in his disembodied energy for 10 billion years, you know, a week is probably not a long time, but still... It was that was a crucial part of the thing. If Alan Scott spent the rest of his life and never traveled to Earth one again, and the whole thing falls apart, right? Yeah. So after they they learn this whole history lesson and everything, Hal Jordan decides, you know what? I better get in touch with my bosses. I better contact the Guardians. So it says here in the captions that they actually go all the way to Ferris Aircraft to the hangar dressing room where the secret powder. Uh, power battery is kept and then it's a waste of time because the guardians contact him so i this raises it's like you're going all the way back home to get your cell phone 
Right. Because you're, you know, because you've got to call somebody and they call your house line. Right. Right. <laughs> and this raises a lot of questions, some of them uncomfortable. Are the Guardians listening and watching all the time? Especially when Carol's involved. <laughs> if they are, why did these pricks wait until he got all the way back to his locker at work before they contacted him? Is it's it just because they think it's funny? Because it's not funny, dude. Um, to them it is. They're immortal. They're right. crazy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all right. So for that matter, why did Jordan go, have to go all the way back to his lo- uh, his work locker for his battery anyway to call the Owens? Can he not just call them up on his ring? Or does he actually need the battery to call them? I was very unclear on this point. They're inconsistent with that. So that's a good that's that's a fair question actually. <laughs> um I love, and by love I hate, on the top of page 12, I think it's the very first, yes, here it is, the Guardian, who is a floaty head with a gaseous body, too many tacos, I guess, says Krona is uh, somewhere on Earth, but he has set up mental uh, defenses to prevent our uh, discovering his exact location. Undoubtedly, undoubtedly, he says, undoubtedly, he will seek again to probe the forbidden secrets of our origins. Hmm. This troubles me. I am very disturbed by the fact that the, the Guardians instantly assume that Krona is going to go right back to the thing that got him in trouble in the first place. Is it not at least conceivable after 10 billion friggin' years as a beam of light is it not possible that maybe he's like, you know what? I, I, I have learned my lesson, dude. I will never do that shit again. I promise. <laughs> they don't even give him the benefit of the doubt. Undoubtedly, the Guardian says he's going to go right back and do the same thing all over again. D- they don't believe in rehabilitation or giving a dude a second. They're the Guardians of the Universe. They're the people that looked at Superman and said, you know, you saving people is a social drag. Right. You need to stop doing that. <laughs> what a bunch of little blue assholes, man. I mean, it's no wonder that Sinestro recently killed them all. So, yeah. Did he? Yeah, good on at the Sin- end of the... Good on Sinestro. <laughs> no, basically at the end of this... Uh... It wasn't the War of the Lanterns. I forget what it was. It was it was the last Jeff Johns storyline mm. uh, before he left the title. But at the end, Sinestro finally just had enough. I've had enough and, too. Um, how can the weather be evil? Uh, have you ever seen Twister? I mean, yeah, but that, it's not evil though, is it? I mean, it, the weather is the bad guy in Twister. If you took if you took the essence of Hitler out of Hitler and projected <laughs> it into a volcano, it's not going to change the volcano, right? It's it, it's an email. I want that movie right now. <laughs> the Hitler volcano. That sounds like a great movie, actually. That's, that's like a sci-fi that. movie. Yeah, I was about to say that's right up there with like Sharknado. Hitlernado. Yes, there you <laughs> go. I love that idea. But no, I mean, come on. 
the weather is not evil. They needed something. Actually, I, I, I stand by my earlier statement. I think you could easily excise chapter two and not miss. Yeah. I mean, seriously, you could, it, it is, it, it's really funny to see filler in a silver age book. Yes. You know, when usually, and, and maybe there's a lot more filler than I'm giving the silver age credit for, but usually this is, this is the middle chapter of like a Brian Michael Bendis event title. Yeah. This is like, you know, this, this is like nothing. We're, we're just, Hey, look at, look at them fighting the weather. Isn't that cool? There is enough material in this one issue to make like three 12 issue modern day maxi series. It's ridiculous. There's a lot of shit going on in this issue. So you, I mean, the you, entire first issue would just be setting up what Oa was like and Krona doing the bad thing. Right. And then we've got to explore, you know, Alan Scott's current life for like 16 pages before, you know, he finally goes and meets up. And, and then the, the cliffhanger to that issue is him going and seeing Earth 2. But then in the next issue, we've got to find out what was going on with Hal Jordan this entire time. Right. So by the time you get to the end of that issue, that is when they meet up. And then finally the story can progress. <laughs> Now, again... Are we being too harsh? Eh, maybe a little bit, but no, I, I, I think they're all valid points. Now, I, again, admittedly, not the biggest Green Lantern... I, I don't have the greatest knowledge of Green Lantern, especially from this era, but I don't believe I've ever heard of Coast River or Mount Pacific before. Are they ever referenced again? Because this is not the... Uh, let me look at my Atlas of the DC universe. Ah, there you go. While you're so... doing that... Does it not look like they've had a mid-air collision on page 15, third panel? A little bit. It looks like Hal Jordan stopped short and and Alan Scott just plowed right into him. Like, whoa, whoops, sorry, I didn't realize you are going to put the brakes on there. <laughs> I'm sorry, I've just been drinking, like, a lot. This will this, be a habit for me later on. So I'm not even going to mention the uh, creation of silver iodide with green power rings. I, I, what the <laughs> hell is that all about? Page... Where is it? Yes. Page 17 is awesome. I know it's Gil Kane and Sid Green, but damned if this doesn't look like George Perez. That's sharp. I really like that page. And maybe it's because I'm used to seeing Krona drawn by Perez that it looks like Perez to me, but Perez is clearly drawing a very Gil Kane Krona when he draws him. I, I like that page a lot. And it looks like he has um, a wicked Excedrin headache, too. Two things about the DC Atlas. It does not mention any of those <laughs> in the Coast City thing. And it has an entry for Dos Rios, Texas, which was the hometown to the to the El Diablo El that Diablo. was running around in the yeah. late 80s and early 90s. So, wow, I, I didn't think that would even merit a mention in, <laughs> in this. Okay, very good. It also has New Carthage, New York. Does it? Yes, that's where uh, that's where Hudson University was. The old one didn't suck enough; they had to create another one. Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> now, so there's a new Watertown. Right <laughs> oh, good it. lord! <laughs> a Black River. <laughs> what, I what, pay attention. They just get tired of unburying the old one from the snow, and they just forge a new one <laughs> on top of it. <laughs> Why is Hal Jordan all pissed off at Alan Scott? The, this appointment idea was not Alan Scott's, you know, it wasn't his idea. It was the Guardian's. 
Plus, on the top of page 19, he calls Alan Scott the Guardian, or rather the Green Lantern of Earth-1. You'd think he'd have figured all this out by now. But he's, he's One, he's been drinking, and two... Um, <laughs> No, I mean it's just Hal always struck me as the type of guy that would that would take the blame out on the wrong person. Right. So it's just like I get fired, so the guy replacing me is obviously at fault. <laughs> now I continue to be confused about the Green Lantern ring constructs. Maybe uh, again, this is only the fortieth issue in, and they were still clearly establishing you know, the mechanics of things. But I was always under the impression that the Green Lantern rings could only make green constructs. Am I wrong about that? Um, uh, That's what I always thought. Because they make silver iodide and yellow barriers. Or at least uh, Alan Scott does. I was just really... Well, what, they're not, what they're not telling you is that uh, Firestorm uh, was <laughs> around back then, so... The yellow thing doesn't actually bother me all that much because conceivably, I mean, come on, you know, yellow is made up of what? Yellow and blue, right? So uh, yeah. that I get. You, you, well, you, green you, is. you turn or green rather. You turn, you turn the blue down, you get the yellow. I, I guess I don't know. I'm just spitballing here. But the silver iodide thing that was a that was a bridge too far. I was like, what? All right. So anyway, uh, it's worth noting here in case uh, I forgot to mention it already. This is Krona's first appearance. Well, in, to which a lot of people go, "Well, yeah, duh." But I just wanted to make that clear. This was his first appearance, and despite what Hal Jordan has to say at the end of, end of the issue, Krona does return. He plays uh, a big part in some other stories, not the least of which was JLA Avengers. While I wasn't as big a fan of that as I was hoping to be, you know, 20 years of anticipation is a long damn time. I liked his role in that series. And I thought whoever came up with the idea of the hook of that story being, Hey, you know, there's a guy in the Marvel universe that could answer this question for you because he was around before the creation of the universe. I thought that was a really cool idea. I thought that was neat. Maybe we, uh, Maybe one day we'll cover that. What do you think, Mike? I'd be up for that. That could be a lot of fun. It could be daunting, but it could be a lot of fun. Maybe, maybe well, we're gonna do t- we're gonna do page by page analysis of George Perez's artwork. There you go. There you go. <laughs> five years later, and on panel five of page thirty-two of the first <laughs> issue. Now I know you don't have the issue in front of you. Do you have something that reprints the ads by any chance? Sadly, no. No. Okay. Well, we'll skip the ads then. But it was just noting that uh, I got a kick out of the ads just because you know it's a vintage comic from '65. There's some really cool. There's uh, Coco Puffs and Rocky and Bullwinkle and stuff like that. But there was a really nice house ad here that I'm now struggling to find where it was exactly. But it was for. Uh, an issue of Brave and the Bold, but the funny thing about it, who do you associate with Brave and the Bold? Well, normally Batman, Batman. but before Batman, it was a random hero team-up yep. book. There were actually a couple of issues that starred Starman and Black Canary, and that's what they're advertising here is issue 62, Starman and Black Canary, and they're fighting um, the Huntress, the evil Huntress, you know, the villain Huntress, and the Sportsmaster. Now, for a guy that really can't abide sports, I don't know what it is. I like the Sportsmaster. I got to get this issue because I actually have the prior one, 61, 
which is also Starman and Black Canary, but I don't have 62, so I'm going to have to get myself a copy of that because it looks really interesting. Trade. Either that or find if it's reprinted somewhere. I have 61 in this trade in the first one. I wonder if it's reprinted in the second one because they put out two of these. They started putting out the Crisis on Multiple Earths line of trade paperbacks, which, uh, which is actually... I was really excited about uh, when they first started kicking those out because it was basically starting from the beginning all of the JSA, JLA team-ups. Ah. And they, you know, they were putting them out on a fairly regular basis for a while and then just stopped. And then years later they put out Volume 5 and they've they've now put out Volume 6 that came out back in June uh, which reprints, by the way, completely the Crisis on Earth Prime crossover between Sweet. Justice League and All-Star Squadron in full color, which you can hear in er- not only in early episodes of this show, but over on the Fire and Water uh, podcast, and they did mention us. So. Oh, sweet. That uh, big superhero hunt, which is Brave and the Bold number 62, leads off Crisis on Multiple Earths, the team-ups, Volume 2. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now on Mike's Amazing World, the places where it's been reprinted to see if I own any of these reprints, and I don't, so far I don't. Let's see, Best of DC 21, I don't own that one either. Oh, that's that one with the really nice cover by Perez that we were just talking about before the show started, mm-hmm. where they're carving the uh, the eagle. That's actually cool. Yeah, I'm going to have to get that. I, I've been watching those uh, Crisis on Multiple Earths team-up volumes on... Uh, on eBay, I might start picking them up. I wouldn't be surprised if I have most of the issues that are in these anyway, but I know some of the very earliest ones I'm, I'm missing scattered issues, like uh, the storyline with uh, with the JLA and um, the Freedom Fighters from right around like JLA was like 108 or whatever. I think I'm missing a chapter or two of that in the actual original issues, so... But here's a question. Speaking of crisis on multiple Earths, here's a question for the listeners. Now, of course, you know, we're we're coming back off of a long hiatus. We have a long road ahead of us. We have a lot, a lot of stuff that we want to cover here in, in you know, in the coming months and years. Of course, crisis on infinite Earths. um, We're going to be covering the crisis crossovers. We're going to be covering all-star squadron proper, Infinity Inc., and a handful of other projects here, there, and everywhere as we get to them. But Mike and I were talking recently about the idea of uh, maybe covering these Crisis on Multiple Earth stories. I'm thinking this banner of Origins of the Crisis on Infinite Earths might be a really good home for that material and kind of give us a, a place to do it, an excuse to do it, as a, opposed to... I, I'm very big on you know, everything has a place, you know what I mean? And not just shoehorning yes. coverage in just because the, the whim hits you to, to cover it, you know, actually making it logical in the progression of the show. That would also mean slowing down that much more, you know, theoretically anyway, getting to the stu- the other stuff we're already committed to covering, you know, the crisis, all-star, all that sort of thing. So I'm going to leave it to listeners. Let us know what you think of that idea. Um, because some of that material, as much fun as it would be to cover, as I think the history of this particular show illustrates, 
sometimes those stories can be really hit and miss. There's some of them that are a lot of fun, like Crisis on Earth Prime, and then there's some of them like... Uh, the crossover the, with the Legion. With the Legion. Like, oh. oh, You know what's funny is I saw somebody post on Facebook not long ago, I'm not sure where it was, maybe in the Back Issue Magazine group, posting all kinds of loving things about that, and I'm like... Clearly, you haven't read that in a while. It's not that good, dude. But you know, everybody loves. What I don't know. I'm, all, I'm always nervous about saying stuff like that because, on one hand, right. uh, you're right, but on the other hand, it's just like you know, there's some stuff out there that I absolutely love that no one else. Does. Oh yes. So you know, th- th- there is that to consider. So. Yep. I know exactly what you're talking about. All right, folks, that about wraps it up for this time. Again, I do want to point out to you, uh, as I said at the very beginning of the show, the next several episodes were recorded a considerable amount of time ago. So, Like a long time ago. Yeah, quite a bit of time ago. So they're they're fully produced, they're fully edited, they're ready to go. So rather than go back and and do a re-edit job or anything like that, we're going to put them out as they exist now. So if there are topical references in there, they may seem a little bit strange. They may be, well, they are. They're significantly out of order because what you're listening to right now, we just recorded specifically as a comeback special we're back exactly but you're gonna hear that in at least one of the very next episodes say hey we're back but just keep in mind that's when we didn't like really come back yet that said and i think mike will agree we're we're committed to this show we are back um i'm not sure what our frequency is going to be we're going to shoot for whatever we're shooting for but we are back that said, we would love some correspondence. We would love some encouragement. Let us know what you think of the show. Um, for anybody that that wrote correspondence to us uh, right around the time just prior to the hiatus or during the hiatus or what, more than likely those emails, sadly, are, are long gone. So feel free to jump in anew and uh, let us know what you think. And uh, keep in mind that contest of... Uh, Whoever's missed us the most and, and has the most excitement, whatever, let us know. You could win some uh, some free swag. So that's about all I got for this time. What do you think, Mike? I think that's about enough. You've reached the end to another amazing episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America. You can find this show as well as an entire slew of other awesome podcasts on a wide variety of geek-related subjects from giant monsters to time lords to movie commentaries to fangirl interests at www.twotruefreaks.com. There you can hear Scott on such shows as Star Wars Monthly Monday, Star Trek Monthly Monday, Comics Monthly Monday, and occasionally Back to the Bins. Mike is on Comics Monthly Monday as well as hosting or co-hosting a few shows himself, like Views from the Long Box, which can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, and From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which can be found at www.fortressofbailytube.com. Scott and Mike have gigantic egos. They love to hear themselves talk. More importantly at least according to their publicist, they want to hear from you. So you can reach the guys by writing to talesofthejsa at gmail.com. Would you like to sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks network shows? Simply head on over to www.twotruefreaks.com. Click the PayPal link 
donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. You can also support this show and the Two True Freaks Network as a whole when you shop on Amazon. Again, simply head on over to www.twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon link. There is no additional charge to your purchase, and a portion of that will get kicked to the network. Welcome to Amazon. I love you. Thank you for listening, and come back next time for another exciting episode of the Tales of the Justice Society of America. 